copy of the scriptures now and turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Normally we're studying in Genesis. We've taken a short break from that during some times of transition here. And we are looking at some passages from the last day, the last evening of Jesus' life on earth. And in doing that, we are learning something about what Jesus desires deeply for his church, for his people. Last week, we began a very brief, I'll emphasize very brief, study of his high priestly prayer in John 17. This is one of the most beautiful and theologically jam-packed passages in all of Scripture. It's not meant to be a model prayer, primarily, like the Lord's Prayer is in Matthew chapter 6, but we can learn some important lessons from it on how to pray. This chapter, this prayer from Jesus, shows, as a general rule, what our focus should be in prayer, what the Lord's focus was in prayer. But even more than that, it gives us a glimpse into his own heart, into Jesus' heart for his people and for his church. We learn in this prayer, we, we see by his own demonstration, important lessons, not just on prayer itself, but on the nature of gospel ministry, on what Christ's mission is in the world on what the life of the church should look like and what the everyday life of Christians should look like and so much more. And so as I mentioned last week, there is simply no way we can cover everything that is in this chapter in two messages. It is a sermon series in and of itself. But my goal for us here and now in this study, my goal for us in this context is that we would lift our eyes to Christ, that we would see him for who he is, that we would, we would get some sort of understanding of what his heart is for us, and that by looking at Christ, we will have stronger faith, that our faith would be built up, and that we would grow in our own hunger to even go back and look at this passage again on our own and study it more deeply. So with that in mind, let's look at John chapter 17 and read this prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. 
and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, or as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This prayer is a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. And it reveals his purpose and his earnest desire for the good of his people. And not just the people who were with him in that moment 2,000 years ago, but for all who would follow after them. This is a prayer in which Jesus indeed was praying for us, knowing who will be his. This prayer is a sort of transition. Jesus' ministry on earth has come to an end. He will soon be crucified. He'll be buried. He'll rise again, and then he will ascend back to the Father. But his disciples' mission was just beginning. And so this prayer is a prayer of preparation and consecration on behalf of the people as he prepares them for the ministry that is to come. And as Jesus prepares to leave, 
This prayer has the sober tone of a man's final words, a man's final prayer. Now, I mentioned last week that structurally this prayer is laid out in three stages, that it begins with Jesus praying concerning himself, and then it expands to Jesus praying for the disciples who are with him right there on that night. And then it expands to all who will follow in the teaching of those disciples, to all Christians throughout all generations. But that's not our outline for the chapter because there are themes interwoven throughout that give us a better understanding of what Jesus is really after. And so as we've worked through this passage and continue to work through it, I want us here to understand, to notice four main themes that Jesus highlights in this prayer. And again, this is survey. We're not going too deeply into any of it. This is survey, but there are four primary themes that Jesus focuses on here. Things that he is concerned about for his church and what he wants to see accomplished in his people. The first theme is glorification. That's what we looked at last week. Glorification. Then we see preservation. Then we see sanctification. And then finally, unification. Last week, we looked at glorification. We looked primarily at verses 1 through 5 and noted that Jesus began his prayer where all prayer should begin, with the glory of God, with a desire and pursuit for God's glory. Only in this case, Jesus is one with the Father. He is God, and so his glory is wrapped up in this. And there are two categories of glory that Jesus talks about here, that he prays about here. There's the glory of heaven, and there is the glory of the cross. In verse 5, Jesus prays that the Father would restore him to the heavenly glory that he possessed with him before the world began. That Jesus has always been one with the Father and glorified with the Father. But then in verses 1 through 4, Jesus focuses on the glory that will come to him through the humiliation of the cross. Those two categories of glory cannot be separated from from each other. He is glorified in heaven, and he was glorified as the Savior at the cross. So our focus last week was on the reasons that God glorifies Christ, that the Father glorifies the Son. He glorifies the Son because he is the eternal Son of God. He glorifies the Son because He is the authority over all the universe. We see that in these verses. He glorifies the Son because He is the giver of salvation and eternal life. He is the source of it and the giver of it. And He glorifies the Son because the Son has indeed completed the work of salvation for His people. And so as we look back in time and we see the cross... For us, it is not a symbol of humiliation. It is a symbol of glory. Because there, the Savior was lifted up for all to see. And whoever looks on Him and calls on His name will be saved from their sins. And Jesus' whole life was about the Father's glory and completing God's mission. And so this prayer for glory that Jesus begins with is the foundation for everything else that is to come in this chapter, in this prayer. 
And so on the premise of God's glory, Jesus will now move on to pray for the preservation of God's people, for the sanctification of God's people, and for the unity or the unification of God's people. That brings us to our second theme in this chapter, the theme of preservation. Preservation. He prays that God would preserve his people. Look down at verse 11. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you gave me. And that which you gave me is referring to them. Keep those that you have given me. Keep them in your name. When he says, I am no longer in the world, what he's referring to is the completion or the end of his earthly ministry. Yes, physically he is still there, but his ministry is ending and he's leaving. His public ministry is over, but his disciples' ministry is just beginning. And so he prays that they are in the world. Jesus had already told them at the Last Supper in chapters 13 through 16, here in John, he had already told them that the world is going to reject them. They're not going to accept you. You are a part of me. They have rejected me. They are going to reject you. He tells them, in fact, that the world is going to hate them. And then he says in verse 14 here, he prays to the Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And he says it again in verse 16, they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. In other words, because they are following Christ, they are not one with the present world. They're not at home in the present world. They don't identify with the present world. That doesn't mean they don't ever enjoy the present world. It doesn't mean that you can never have a friend who isn't truly a Christian. No, that's not what that means. But the general thrust of their lives is contrary to the world. And because of that, there's this distance. There's this rejection from the world. Sometimes even hostility. And Jesus made it clear throughout his earthly ministry that his people will not ultimately fit into this world because we are made for a different world. We are made for somewhere else. But because of this hatred from the world toward Christ, and because this hatred will be directed to those who follow him as well, because of the world's rejection of Christ and his teaching, because anyone who follows Christ ultimately is an outcast from this world, there has to be this need for some supernatural preservation and protection. How is it that God's people can live in this present world as it is? It is by divine power. It is by the preservation that comes from God himself. God's people are in need of protection. Protection from the world's hostility and from our own tendency to sin, from our own tendency to give in to the world's pressure. So Jesus prays in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. 
We've talked before about how the name of God is a reference to his character and all of his attributes. So what he is saying here is keep them, Father, according to your holy character and according to the promises that you've made to them. That unique title, Holy Father, brings the holiness and the righteous character of God into view, and it stands in stark contrast to the evil character of this present age. There's a spiritual war. Father, put your holiness on display, and as they live and minister in this evil world, hold them fast in your righteousness. This is not a prayer that God would keep every difficult experience away from us. This is not a prayer that God would make all of our troubles go away, or even that God would separate us from the the evil influences of this world. So this is not a call for us to think that because we follow Christ, life is going to be easy. Nor is it a call for us to completely remove ourselves from any influence in the world. But this is a prayer, a confident prayer. It's a prayer that serves more as a declaration of what the Father will do. It is a prayer that God would preserve His people in holiness and righteousness and steadfastness and faithfulness in the midst of the constant pressure and the attacks of evil. That we would stand firm for Christ's sake. In fact, in verse 15, Jesus goes on to pray specifically, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Guard them in the midst of this world. So that reveals a very important truth that we need to understand. And it's this. We are at war with the evil one and his influence in a foreign land for Christ's sake. That's an important statement, and I said it that way on purpose. So I'm going to say it again. We are at war with the evil one and his influence in a foreign land for Christ's sake. I say it that way on purpose. Here's why. First of all, we are at war, spiritual warfare, in this world. But our warfare is with the evil one and his influence. What does that mean? It means that our warfare is not necessarily with every unbeliever. We have to remember that. Christians, beware of the tendency to view the lost as your enemy. Jesus looked at the lost with compassion and saw them as sheep without a shepherd and his heart broke for them. Would that our hearts broke today for the lost around us. Our war is not with them as people. Our war is against the evil one who has blinded their eyes and the influence of the evil one in this present world. Yes, those unbelievers are enemies of God in their sin. That is true. And yes, there is judgment coming on all who do not know Christ as their Savior. But our mission is not to beat them over the head and to condemn them. 
Our mission is not to treat them with hostility, but to lovingly and boldly preach the gospel to them so that they will know the forgiveness and the grace of God through Jesus Christ and so that they will be saved. But the reality is that the message we proclaim and the ministry we provide often will provoke the resistance of the world, sometimes even the hostility of the world. That's because, and we need to understand this, we are at war in this world with something much bigger and more powerful than just human beings who don't want to hear the message. Our conflict with them is ultimately not with them, but with the evil one. Now, who is the evil one? It's the devil himself. Yes, the devil is real, and his influence is real, and it is strong, and it shapes the world's values, it drives the world's ambitions, and it tempts our own flesh. We have to fight against it. And so Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, exhorts us with this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You suffer because you're trying to stand for righteousness? Take heart, Christian. That's what it means to follow Christ in this world. And there are Christians all over the world who have the same experience. We are at war in this world with the evil one. Secondly, we need to understand we are at war in a foreign land. We are at war with the evil one and his influence in a foreign land. What that means is this world is not our home not our final home. Sometimes I think we Christians feel a little too comfortable in the world as it is, don't we? Not always. I think sometimes we drift into that. And let me say this, Christian, if you don't feel like an outcast in this world, at least to some degree, if you don't feel like this can't possibly be all there is, if you don't feel like this is not all right, then Something is off in your own thinking. Something is off in your own mind. And if you are trying to be acceptable to the world, as so many Christians are trying to do today, then you are not truly pursuing Christ. So Christian, if that's you, you need today to ask God's forgiveness, and you need to ask God to reset your focus on what is most important. It's a sad thing that so many today, some who are even calling themselves Christians, are wasting their lives and their time and their money and their best energies on the comfort that the world wants to offer and the approval of the world. And again, I'm not saying we can't enjoy the things of the world that the world has to offer, but are we not often so attached to them that that's all we're really pursuing? And where is Christ in all of this? Christ has called us to a higher purpose, a higher mission, a greater joy. So Christians, embrace the hardship of living in a hostile world. 
Embrace the hardship of living in a foreign land and set your gaze on the heavenly promised land that God is preparing for you. Thirdly, we are at war with the evil one and his influence in a foreign land for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake, not for our own sake. What I mean here is this. Do not be earthly minded in your thinking about what kind of preservation Jesus is talking about here. This isn't a health and wealth or prosperity prayer that he is praying. Jesus is talking about preserving his people spiritually in a spiritually dark world. That's important to remember because if we think that Jesus is committing purely to preserving his people physically, then many of us are going to be set up for failure, even for apostasy. Because the truth is, some people die for their faith. What do you do with them if this is merely a physical prayer? No, this is a prayer for a spiritual preservation in a spiritually dark world. This is not about God giving us nice things or good health or great comfort in this world. In fact, many of the most notable Christians throughout history have suffered greatly in the world. They have suffered, they have battled lifelong sicknesses and illnesses. They have faced terrible sorrow and heartache throughout their lives. They have suffered poverty and hunger, and many have even lost their lives. Don't see this prayer of Jesus as a promise of comfort in this world. Don't hold that as a standard of whether or not you will follow him. Because his promise is much greater than that. That no matter what faces you, no matter what hunger you face, no matter what heartache you face, no matter what persecution you face, he will hold us fast through the pressures and the temptations and the suffering of this fleeting world. He will preserve us, and He is indeed preparing us for the perfect joy of the world to come. Well, there's so much more we could say there, but we need to move on. Jesus prays for the preservation of His people. Next, He prays, thirdly, for the sanctification of His people. This is closely related to the preservation He prays that God will preserve those whom he sanctifies and that he will sanctify those whom he preserves. If glorification was the foundation for this passage, then the sanctification is the turning point. It's the crux of this whole passage. God's glory in our lives, our own preservation in this world, our unity with God and his people, All of this turns, it hinges on the sanctification by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. The sanctification of His people. Look at verse 17. Jesus continues in His prayer, Sanctify them in the truth. First thing we need to understand, there is such a thing as truth, and it matters that we know it. But what does that word sanctify mean? 
The word means to consecrate or to set apart or to dedicate for a specific task. That is the word that is behind the word holy for us. The word is used down in verse 19 as well in terms of Jesus consecrating himself for the work that he came to do. And now he is praying it for God's people, for all of us, that God would sanctify or consecrate each one of us as his own chosen people, special people set apart for his divine purposes. Don't let them just wander through the world with no purpose, Father. Preserve them. Set them apart. Consecrate them for the mission you have them to do. So the Apostle Peter, again, so eloquently explains in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race. If you're in Christ, this is you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are set apart unto him that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has chosen us. He has saved us. He has set us apart for his purposes. To proclaim his character, his work, his word through the new life we've received from him in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be sanctified is to be made holy. And to be made holy means to be wholeheartedly set apart unto God in every way. That means to love Him. It means to serve Him. It means to live for Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So while I enjoy the things of this world, I am to enjoy them for His glory and for His purposes. And frankly, Christians, You've experienced this, haven't you? That's the greatest joy there is. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God. You trying to find out what the will of God is for your life? Oh Lord, what's, what's, the will for, what's your will for my life? Here's it. Here it is. Your sanctification. God's will for us is to make us holy and to set us apart for His purposes and His glory. Now, how does he do that? Well, look back at verse 17. Jesus prays, sanctify them, make them holy, set them apart, in the truth. Your word is truth. The truth here is the word of God. That's the Bible. And the word of God is the means of sanctification. The word of God, as we receive it, as we understand it, as we apply it to our lives, and as we obey it. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 3, when he says all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for maintaining, or excuse me, for training in righteousness. That is a comprehensive view of the Christian life. Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is God's Word. It is His revelation to us of who He is and how we ought to live. That Word of God teaches us and corrects us and changes us. 
And so as we study the Word of God, the Spirit of God opens up our eyes to it. It brings it to life in us. And then we grow in spiritual maturity and in spiritual wisdom and obedience. This means that the sanctifying work of God in our hearts is a continual progressive thing. Any of you perfect as you ought to be today? I don't think any of you would raise your hands. We all know we're not. But are you more holy today than you were when you came to Christ? I trust you are. Why? Because this is the work that God does in our lives. As we saturate ourselves in the Word of God, as we submit to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, we grow in spiritual maturity. We grow in Christ-likeness. And so putting all of this together, one commentator sums it up this way by saying, the believer is so changed by the working of God's Word in his life that he is separated from evil and to God. This new devotion, which results in separation from evil, produces purification of life and consecration to God's service. Since the Word of God is truth, it provides the unchanging standard for the course and character of life. That doesn't mean we're perfect. We still sin. But what is the trajectory of your life? And for this, we need a steady and frequent diet of God's holy word. That means, beloved, that we must be pursuing it. We must be hungry for more exposure to the word of God. We ought to be studying it personally on a regular basis. We ought to be looking for opportunities to hear it preached and taught. And yes, that means that we need to make assembling together as a church a central priority in our lives. And we need to be committed to a local church. And we ought to be pursuing opportunities for discipleship with one another, where we can learn from one another according to the Word, and where we can invest what God has taught us into the lives of others for their spiritual good. So that we grow in the Word together. Together. And furthermore, the Word of God must transform us. Not just fill our heads with knowledge, not just work up our emotions, but transform how we live. And it must transform us and produce in us a heart of service where we apply and live by what we have learned. Service to the Lord and service to one another. If your faith doesn't have feet and hands, we do not know if your faith is real. In an age when more and more Christians are embracing this individualistic mentality and have convinced themselves that one sermon a week and a few nice Instagram posts or inspirational videos is enough, my contention is that we need more preaching of the Word. We need more teaching of the Word. We need more study of the Word personally and with one another in discipleship. And we need more Christians who will step up and who will engage with God's people and with their church family and who will serve for the cause of Christ in one another and in our communities. For if our Bible study does not translate into a life lived for the glory of God in the world where He has put us, then we've missed something crucial. 
How can we possibly claim to be godly, growing Christians and neglect the Word of God as much as we often do? We need the Bible. We need it early, often, and in every possible way. There's no fasting here. You might choose to do a fast in some other aspect of your life, but this is the one area, along with prayer, where we are allowed, in fact, we are encouraged and called to indulge ourselves to our heart's content and then some. We must cultivate and pray for a deep hunger for the Word of God, and we must commit ourselves to receiving it and receiving it with a humble, teachable spirit. The only people who will be holy and godly and look like Christ are those who have been sanctified, cleansed, fed, and transformed by the Word of God into mature Christians. We're called to this. So my question is for you today, how much effort are you putting into it? I know God has accomplished it through Christ. The work is done. But are you striving to grow? Are you striving to know your Lord? And what is it that you could be doing better? Where is it that you need to make an adjustment in your life to be better positioned for this, for this sanctification that He wants to do in you? Glorifying God by growing in godliness and Christ-likeness through the Word of God and remaining steadfast in this world by the grace of God and His Holy Spirit. That is what we've covered to this point. But this is something we don't do on our own. We're in this together. And that brings us to our final point, our fourth theme, unification. Jesus prays for the unity of His church. Look at verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in Your name that You have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. Now look down at verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's all Christians of all generations, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And this isn't just frivolous talk here, this back and forth that he does. He's, he's describing our oneness with God. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, just as they are, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Jesus prays here that all of his people would be unified with a unity that reflects the unity he has with the Father himself. Our unity as a church is that important. It's not something we can take or leave. It's not something we can take lightly. It is rooted in the unity of the Father and the Son together. And if you've ever studied any part of the Trinity, you know there is no separating the two. They are one. How is this kind of unity possible when we are all so different? Well, 
It's possible because the basis of our unity is not our family heritage. It's not our hobbies. It's not our background. It's not our hometown. It's not our personality or our preferences. The basis of our unity is this common salvation we have in Christ. The common faith that we have, that we have received from Christ. And this Christ who has brought us this salvation and this common faith has promised to bring into one people, into one body, every people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Meaning that for all of our earthly differences, we are one. And we are one in remembering this. We are sinners saved by grace. Alone. And when that is our identity, then the things that so easily divide us will not divide us anymore. Right? And frankly, forgetting this is what so often causes divisions among us. Forgetting that I am just a sinner saved by grace, just like you are. As one preacher said, this prayer of Jesus is a rebuke to the unhappy divisions in the Christian church. This prayer shows us that godly, holy people are unified people, not divided people, nor divisive people. And this unity that he prays for, this unity that he produces in his church, is not this empty, generic, superficial unity. It is anchored in truth and purity. Truth and love. We see uh, the unity of the truth played out in verses 17 through 19. And we see the love in, in, in places like verse 23, where the relationship of love between the Father and the Son is the very definition of our unity with one another. In other words, unity among Christians is inseparably linked to love. And it is as it is between the Father and the Son. And both unity and love are anchored inseparably to the truth. So if we do not live according to the truth of God's word, our unity will suffer. And if we do not live by Christ-like love, our unity will suffer. And frankly, if we are not unified with one another, and if we don't engage with one another where they are and serve each other in Christian love and unity, then there is something wrong in our understanding of truth and of love in our own lives. So we see that unity is linked to our own godliness. Did you hear me? Unity is linked to our godliness. Boy, that'll change how we talk about people behind their backs, won't it? And frankly, it should change the basis and the focus of our relationships with God's people, taking us deeper into a common growth and biblical truth and godly love. And then look at this in verse 23. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. In a way, that's a restatement of our life's purpose. 
to proclaim to the world through our lives and through our message who Jesus is. Here's how this works. We know God through the truth, which leads us to love God, which leads us to love one another, which leads us to biblical unity with truth and love as the foundation. As we grow closer to the Lord, we will grow closer to one another. Then the world sees that, they see our love, and gets an accurate picture of who God is. Therefore, our truth and our love and our unity is what drives our outreach. In fact, it drives us to outreach. Now, again, there's so much more we could say about that here, but we need to bring this to a close. So I want to point out one more thing that Jesus prays for back in verse 13. Jesus says, these things I speak in the world, that is, I'm praying this right here, right now, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Joy. Joy is not a major theme of this passage, but it permeates the whole thing. This joy is at the heart of Jesus' desire for his people and his plan for his people, an eternal joy. Amid all the talk of this preservation in an ungodly world and attacks of the devil and all of this, Jesus reminds his people that his ultimate plan for them is joy. And that leads us right back to verses 2 and 3, where he talks about eternal life, which is his earnest desire in prayer for us. And so what we have seen in this prayer throughout this chapter is a portrait of eternal life for our joy. What does eternal life look like? What does the life of a true Christian really look like? This passage shows us. It looks like dedication to God's glory above all else. It looks like steadfastness and faithfulness and preservation by God in this world. It means a steady life. It looks like growth in godliness, growth in Christ-likeness and spiritual maturity through the Word of God and the Spirit of God at work in us. And it looks like union of love with God and unity of love with God's people. So the question is this, on the basis of this crucial and tender chapter from Christ, where are you? Where are you? Are you of the world or are you of the saving grace of God? There are no other options. There is no middle ground. Are you of this world? Or are you of the saving grace of God? If you are of the world, there is hope for you. There is hope in Jesus Christ for this eternal joy that he has promised. I urge you today, if you have never come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sin. Call on the name of the Lord. Come to salvation in Jesus Christ. Call on him as your Savior. Submit to him as your Lord. And these things will belong to you because he is a great Savior. He will save. 
no one who calls on his name gets cast out. Christians, take some time to meditate on this chapter today and throughout this week. Does the way you live your life show that you are living for the glory of God alone? Do you acknowledge that you are a stranger in this world? Are you striving to live righteously and godly in this present world, even against the popular trends and cultural pressure? Are you hungry for the word of God? And what are you doing to get more of it? In what ways are you taking in the word of God? And are you trying to pour it out to somebody else? Do you honestly and earnestly love your brothers and sisters in Christ with a steadfast, humble, godly love? Are you committed to them? Meditate on this today, Christians. Let the Spirit convict you. Repent where you need, then rise up and walk in holiness right here and right now. The Lord will strengthen, the Lord will guide, as He leads you all the way to your eternal home. Let's pray together.